So today, we just want to say thank you, Dina, for joining us. Thank you, Jack, for having me. Uh, yes, Thomas, it's been a minute. We've been trying to do this, so I'm excited. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. You know, you're somebody that I I respect in the space that you're in, um, how Fender Alum Alumni Association is going, and just the kind of impact that you're making uh, with people who have been impacted by the justice system. So thank you for coming on. Um, so I'm just going to jump right in. There's one thing in your bio that makes me go, wow, you were facing 114 years sentence for a nonviolent offense. What was going on at that time in your life? Well, new mother, my baby was about four. Uh, of course, I come from a long history of brokenness and abuse and led me to alcoholism, running away from home at 14, where I remained. Um, and it turned into alcoholism. Then I'm on a path of survival, surviving life, surviving poverty, and surviving alcoholism with a newborn baby. Um, yeah. And it went from there. So that landed me into Julia Tutwala Prison for Women here in Alabama with 114 years, as you said, for a nonviolent offense. And the only thing that I could think of at that moment was I have messed my life up. I mean, and I couldn't fathom me being gone from my children uh, for so long, anything like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, when you think about 114 years, you also said that, like, you began to prepare yourself to rebuild, rehabilitate yourself. Like, what kept you hopeful in that moment? Because we're going to talk a little bit about trauma that you 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 said you experienced. But I want to know in that moment, what kept you so hopeful? Well, I have a relationship with the higher power. Uh, so I got a lot of peace along that journey. And I think that peace is what sustained me throughout. It gave me the eye opener and the enlightenment that I need to do something and something different. And I don't think at that time it was really about me getting out, but about me just coming to the fullness of who I am, what I was meant to be, uh, just soul searching, healing. And I knew that one day I would get out. That was the strangest thing. Like three weeks into my incarceration, I was still in the county jail waiting on transfer. And it was like this quiet thing that happened. It was like, you're going home. And it was like, oh. And at that moment, I lived every day knowing that I would be going home. I had a 30-year setup, didn't know if I would even be able to make parole after 30 years because here in Alabama, um, you don't know if you're going or not. You're just set up for parole. So my setup date was 30 years after my sentence, and I went to work from there. I just didn't want to be that lady that came in the back gate of the prison. And so wow. that's the journey. That's how it started. Wow. You know, that's inspirational right there. Just to say, I have, I know that this is where I'm facing, but I have hope. I'm going home one day. Now, you talked about some brokenness and trauma that you had in your life, pretty much for all your life. And, you know, with that kind of brokenness and trauma, a lot of people have find it hard to find hope. Now you have this situation in your life. You have this brokenness and trauma. I know you believe in a higher power, but what was it that, that helped you to put that trauma in proper perspective? 
How did you put your trauma in perspective to be able to move past it? Well, at six years old, I walked in on my mom attempted suicide. Uh, and I was the oldest of four. I had a baby sister two years younger than me, and I had a set of twin brothers that was three weeks old at that time. Wow. And when I heard her crying in the bathroom, and I opened the door up, and she's just crying to no end, can't get a word in edgewise. And I can remember my little six-year-old self walking over to her saying, what's the matter? Like I was treating her like a baby. I was like, what's the matter? It's going to be okay. And But I'm also looking with my mouth open on the inside like, this lady, what is she doing? And mm-hmm. But the only thing that I could do and think was, I got to get this gun from her. I got to get this gun from her. So I said then to some friends, my manipulation started then, right? It's like the end game in mind. Whatever's going on right now, I have the end game in mind. I need this gun. And she handed it to me. I can remember her taking that deep breath like, and when she did that and released it like, you know, and and that. And when she did it, I knew that was my opportunity to reach my hand out. And she actually put the pistol in my hand. And I took out the bathroom. At that time, I was rubbing her back and telling it's going to be okay. And I called my aunt, which is my grandmother's sister. And she actually came and got me from my mom's house. And that's where I was. Uh, And a lot of resentment, a lot of animosity was there for my aunt that I didn't find out until I was in my phase of processing. I was 30-some years old at this time and realized that I had held a grudge against my aunt. That's why I left home at 14. And it wasn't that she had actually kicked me out the house. It was she said something. And it was all grown-ups need their own place. And out the door I went, like, that's it? I can leave? I'm gone. And I did not know that my life was going to take a downward spiral at that point. An eighth-grade dropout, all of Birmingham at my reach, and I need to be able to live from day to day. And so a friend of mine that I had met through juvenile detention um, introduced me to how to make money without a job. And so that's what I did. <laughs> and that's all it was. It was how to get money without a job. And, and you know, avoid what I thought was the dangers of the street. Me being a girl out here by myself, possibly getting raped and all this stuff. And uh, they gave me a gun and a pack. That's how it started. But the yeah. process of that, I realized that my mom was 20-some years old with four children and she was single. And the guy she was dating was leaving her at the moment. That that was her whole reason for wanting to take her life at that time was he was breaking up with her for someone else. And she said it. She's like, he's going to leave me. And I couldn't figure that out. Like, and you're going to leave your children. And so as I'm right. processing it, I'm being a, I'm 30 some years old. And this is, you know, a six year old kid. Cause I had to go back and, and, and find that little girl that I left, that little girl that I, in terms of abandoned, because that's what I felt my mom had did to me, was abandoned me. And unbeknownst to me, I had did it to myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I had put her up in this place of safety. So it was a long process. And by the time I was 43, exiting prison, um, I think I had gotten to a place that I was okay with my past and knew that life was in front of me. Uh, everything had its reasons, of course, uh, with some spiritual practices, some, a lot of meditation, a lot of reading, uh, 
and just a lot of challenging what I had come to believe and allowing the truth itself to reveal itself in its own time, in its own way, so that I can move forward and that I can do whatever it was that I was intended to do and be. And 10 years later, here I am. So, wow. And well, it was actually yeah. 20 years later, 10 years in prison and 10 years at home. So it's been a long road. It has yeah. been a long road. I can relate to everything you said right now as far as the overcoming part of it. Um, going back to that little girl where you left her at six years old and really having to recapture those that feeling of who you are. I, I often share this in my story that I had to go back to before all the madness so I could find what I truly wanted and believed in life and begin to believe that again. And so it, it's one of those things where as I listen to you, it's so inspiring for other people to understand that like regardless of how much trauma you have in life, you can overcome and you are a light and an example of that. So you, you're out 10 years afterwards and was it unexpected at that time? Mm, yep, I had gone up for parole five times and it was like, I wasn't supposed to even go up for parole. So here's five opportunities and it's like, no, no, no. I think the third no, really was like i went into this place i was like hey god now listen you know that was not the answer i was looking for it was like okay you know it's a time when you and your words of trusting in a power that's greater than you that's fine but it's a time when they are challenged you are going to trust me are you not that's just my journey and it was like but I, I at that moment i really realized that there was a relationship there because I can say, speak, and feel everything that I was feeling, say everything without any, like, I'm not supposed to be saying this to, especially God, right? But right. I could, and it was a peace. I was able to say, hey, this wasn't the answer that I was looking for, but I'm going to trust you nevertheless. And even in those moments uh, in everything, it was like, after all, you just went up for parole three times, then the fourth time, and then they're like, well, she needs to pay the pipe a little longer. And then the fifth time, well, if she comes back in 15 months, because this can't be the same lady uh, that left left the streets, that had wreaked havoc on society. And number six was the weirdest one of all, which was the one that I made. I was actually at a work release camp and uh, I was working at a place uh, selling boat parts and pulling boat parts. And um, that weekend, my brother was going to come and get me so I could spend the night at home for the first time in nine and a half years. Mm -hmm. And so this parole guy, they told me to come back in from my past, fill the paperwork out on a Friday, come, at, come in for the past, meet the person. It was the weirdest thing that was going to interview me for parole, which I had just had an interview that Tuesday. And this guy, I came in, my brother brought me back up to the work release center. And I came in to meet with this gentleman whose son today is the mayor of Birmingham where I live. Craziest thing ever, kid you not. But he interviewed me in the street. It's like I was fearful. I did not want to go back in the building. 
if I go back in the building, they're not going to let me out. This is a story of itself. But when I rung the doorbell, they sent him out. And he actually stood in the alley uh, by this building and was interviewing me like, hey, I need to ask you some questions. And I was like, I just did this Tuesday. He said, where would you live if they decided to let you out? And I was like, well, at my godparents. He's like, well, I need you to put that address right here. Because that's, yeah. But the address that I had was the work release address. Because when they asked, well, place your address here, I'm incarcerated. That's where I reside. And he did this exercise psychologically where he had an ink pen and he told me that an instrument is an instrument. And he gave me the ink pen and he did this exercise. He asked me some more questions. He came back to the ink pen being an instrument. And finally, he screamed out of nowhere and I jumped. And I was like, no, because he was like, just stick it in there. And I was like, stick it in my arm. Like, no. But, but I after hindsight 2020 was whatever my first response was to that not knowing it was coming would be my response to life trials and traumas i mean trials and tribulations as i go forward and he because he had asked why did i drink and i told him it was a method of coping that's what i did to cope and he said i'm glad you used past tense and by the time we got to this exercise he looked at me with this funny little smirky smile and said, you have a great day, Miss Dickinson. I said, you too, sir. So he got back up and he got to the steps and he turned around and he called my name. And he said, Miss Dickinson, I need to ask you something. He said, no, I need to tell you something. I said, yes. He said, we just need to find a new way to cope then, don't we? And I looked at him and I said, I already have, which is my higher power, which I didn't say that to nice. him. But, you know, but anyway, I believe at that moment I had made parole. At that very moment, it was, it was just so, anyway, it, it, yeah. You know, keeping hope in the middle of all this, you know, let's just keep it real. When you're in the process yeah. of going through these paroles and everything else, I mean, keeping optimism sometimes is like, I need to find it. Being inside, I know I've, I've come across a lot of people who would not get parole and their hopelessness just kept feeding them and feeding them. And to hear your story of like, you know, I'm in, I'm getting parole and I'm not even supposed to. Sometimes we have to look at the positive sides of, of everything. Um, but one of the things I want to highlight also is if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And for you, starting from the beginning of getting yourself ready, I think that's one of the biggest parts that helped you get to that parole. It was not waiting until, um, waiting until, I hit the gate to get ready, but I was ready and you were prepared for your freedom and your experiences, right? So in your transition, Every day. yeah, tell us about your transition. You had in your transition now that you're out unexpectedly kind of type of mm -hmm. support you had, um, some of the the challenges may, you may have faced. What were some of the challenges mm -hmm. in well, the challenge was everything was new to me. Um, I had to get in school, get my GED, because I wasn't allowed to uh, get an education while I was there. I was a long timer, what they said. I was someone that was going to be there a while, and I had time. Um, then after that, I uh, continued to work, but I had picked up a lot of nuggets along the way, and I was pulling up on them. Don't quit a job if you don't have one. Um, do the next right thing, continue to pour into yourself, 
um, all of these things, but I didn't know how to interview for a job because I had never worked before. And I can remember that being a challenge, uh, going to a Microsoft Word class and someone teaching me how to interview. And then a friend of mine, because I met someone at a Kairos outside that became my mentor that was from Boston, totally different. And she was a professor at one of the uh, two-year colleges. And so um, she brought me up for someone inside of their office to interview me just to get do like a mock interview. And I lost it. They asked me one question, and that was, and I was ready for this. I was so ready. I was, I had it. And they was like, tell me something about you. And I think all of the, you're nobody sort of kind of came up. The inadequacy, mm -hmm. the, the yeah. not, un, not undeserving, everything that they say to you, that you, you take on and don't even realize that you take it on came up. And I lost it. And so after the mock interview and I went outside and I was just looking at all of Birmingham and she was there and she said, what's the matter? And I was like, I just don't know where I belong in all of this. I really don't know where do I belong in all of this. And life so vibrant and people are moving and doing and all of this. And so she said, well, how do you feel? And I said, I feel like, and this is how unprepared prison had as far as what reentry is supposed to be like in preparing people for an exit and a positive exit. They didn't do that for me. And I didn't realize that until I was there. And I felt like I had been dropped out of an army uh, flight or plane or something into this place that I've never been. And them telling me, this is where you'll be for the next three, four months. This is where you'll meet us at a certain time and go get about your mission and we'll meet you back here. You know. Like, what am I going to do in this foreign place? How am I yeah. going to get, you know? And so that's where I was. I was lost. The yeah. challenge of just having to navigate in a space. No friends, because I had brought the idea change your people, places, and things. Anything right. that, yeah, all of that. All of that. And I exercised it, too. So... Yeah. Uh, my my transition it was it was something it was something I had family support with my godparents, but I didn't have any friends and I just did it one day at a time and one moment at a time, carrying that same hope and that same trusting in a higher being that I had from the start. Like, yeah. I'm out. My my even my prayer had changed. Like, let me out of prison. Let me out of prison. I can remember it changed. It was when you let me out, help me stay out. Because people are coming back in. So right. I have no doubt, right? Right. It, it's so refreshing to hear your story, too, as far as like the, the perspective of one day at a time. Don't quit a job till you get another job. You know, just the process. Trust the process. I've been telling myself, trust the process from the moment I got locked up until even now, years later. And, you know, trust the process. So you know you're not alone in this process. You know that there are many people coming out of jails and prisons. You just talked about how people would return to prison and your prayers change. What did that do for you? What did that make you see? What, what did that spark inside of you knowing that you're not alone and you see people going back to prison all the time? Keep pushing. Keep pushing. And whatever it is, there's a lesson in everything that you're going through. And everything that you're going through, though it may seem bad, 
isn't bad, right? It, it will turn. It is doing a thing unbeknown to you. It may be uncomfortable. It may be unwanted in the moment. But in trusting that my life is in somebody else's hand, in something else's hand, all would be well. But I had an advantage, and I, I use it now. My goal when I came home was to stay home for 10 years. I had been locked up 10 years, and my goal was I need to stay free as long as I was incarcerated. I had seen so many people coming back in. They had told me the recidivism rate was within a three-year period. This is what happened, and this is what I did. Every day, my goal is to stay free. And in January, I completed that goal. And I said, because I can look over my shoulder for those first 10 years of incarceration and see that the changes that have been made and all of these things that had happened, okay, let me try 10 more years, right? And, and leave it in the hands that had been working and cultivating in a space for me, right? right. Um, and so now, 10 years forward, I get to say, because I have these landmarks, I get to say, hmm, let me see what he's gonna do in 10 more years, right? Yes. And so this is what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm placing myself 10 years at a time here. And, and in that, in June, I had 20 years of sobriety. So nothing, you know, nothing is wrong. It may not be as I want it or, or whatever that means now, because I live a life that's simple and one that's very rewarding and yes, we want things, but things drove me to the place that I got myself, really, right? And when I think about things after burying a 16-year-old from our youth group last Friday, and my birthday was right before, and I couldn't celebrate it as happy birthday. I was grateful, but it was hard for me to find happy when I'm looking at 53, and he's 16 and won't see it. You know, wow. so it was, it was, you know, those things, because our perspective changes, values and priorities change. And I realized that everything that I had placed value in before incarceration was something that made me feel good. It was because I didn't feel good. Now I have a peace and I, and I feel okay. I'm, I'm okay with my value. I'm valued because I'm an individual, I'm a human being, not what I have. Not where I live, you know, not what I drive, not where I, what I wear. And so I live in that. I live in that, you know, uh, and I live a, a life of service and principle. Right. So we're going to talk about the life yeah. of service and principle here. I just have to say <laughs> something. When you said that you got these milestones, this 10 years, let me be free. I was 22 years, one month, four days old when I went to prison. And I told myself, I'm going to give myself wow. 22 years one month, four days, live in a different way. And let me see what happens. And I got out on September 12th, 2000. That literal 22 wow. years, one month, four day date was September 12th, 2016. So it was exactly 16 years after me getting out of prison that I was able to say, this is what it looks like. And let me see what else can happen. You know, it's, it's that faithfulness that you see. So the final thing I want to talk to you then about is Offenders Alumni Association. How was that birth? Wow. I was home two years serving, uh, looking for the next thing to get into to make sure I had my, my time covered, if nothing else, because I also had my 
history, my life. I had 24 hours, seven days a week. I did what I want, when I want, and how I want, you know, and didn't answer to anyone and all this stuff. And so um, when I came home, my transition was to fill my time gap like I did inside with something positive and productive. And so I placed myself on task, which is a program here in Birmingham that you have to do your analysis random and you can go to classes a couple of days a week. So that kept me with some positive information. I mean, to me, I was going to use all of this stuff in the work that I do. So I was actually being trained for the next mission field that the God of my understanding was placing me on. So the instructor had been home a few years and he had life without parole and he, his life without parole was turned over. And so he would let me co-facilitate with him because he was like, you need to say something to these people. I'm like, I'm here like them, though. I'm just coming home myself, you know, just trying to do. And so this is what he would do. And then one day he said, I needed to meet um, Deborah Daniels. I needed to meet her because we need you on our team, girl. You and I. I so Martin Luther King, the weekend of Martin Luther King's uh, birthday, they do this thing here at the 16th Street Baptist Church. That was Deborah Daniels. She was there and he introduced me to her and she had this little look on her face. And it was like, hi. And I was like, hi, how are you? Now is not the time. This isn't, you know, the venue for us. And so I said, Mr. Posey, I will meet Deborah Daniels another time. So my parole advocate invited me to a luncheon that Deborah Daniels was hosting to introduce her vision and her dream and or hopes of how can we formerly incarcerated individuals reach back and help others. Well, I sort of knew that concept from AA, and I was like, well, when are we going to start? So that next Monday, we started having support groups at the location that we were in. Would I remain there every Monday? There I am, taking people back and forth to meetings and just doing all this peer supported stuff, unbeknownst to me that it had a title to it. Um, and then I became a peer support specialist for substance use disorders, and I volunteered three years inside of two of the women facilities, that a recovery facility. So all of this stuff is happening. Now, I do not know that I'm actually being trained and I'm going to school for what it is that's in front of me. Um, and this was two years after I had came home, and OEA was birthed then in 2014. I came home in 2012. We uh, started a community engagement, all of these things, like how can we remove the negative stigma? We're going to be a positive light in our community. They need to see us differently. What can we do with that? So we adopted a neighborhood and they started giving back to elderly doing their lawns and everything, still meeting every week. And then finally, like, we got to come out of this conference room. We need to go inside and let them know that they can get out, they can stay out, things are out here to help them because I know how it feels on the inside. When you're doom and gloom, for one, you don't know you're getting out or you don't know the way to stay out or you don't know that people really can get jobs after prison and keep them, right? Because they're not going to hire us. We're former finished. They're not going to give us a place. But one of my biggest things was how can we become a resource for ourselves? Stop crying. Let's stop. No. What can we do besides looking for somebody to hand us out something? You know, why, mom, you don't need to give me no party because I came home from jail, you know? So, right. yeah, and all of this stuff. And how can we really be a part of the solution? How can we be a part of the things that are going on centered around formerly incarcerated individuals and be impactful in our communities, those communities in which we were a part of the destruction and the decay, all of this. 
So we went there, went into the community, went inside the prison. Then we adopted, uh, once we adopted the neighborhood, we birthed the youth program in the community. Why? Because we understand the school to prison pipeline. We understand that you will go to juvenile at 13 and at 15, you will have your life sentence if you're not killed. You know, and, and no, I already know the kids are not going to accept what you're saying. Scared straight didn't work for me, so we don't use that approach at all. We build relationships and we have conversations. First and foremost, let's tear down these barriers of distrust. Let's not befriend you because I'm your homie and I'm cool, but let me speak and articulate the things that you're going through because you have no earthly idea. I understand what it feels like to not have a mother. I understand what it feels like to be taken from your mother because she's unfit. You don't understand that you want to be with your mother. So and all of these feelings and you're not able to say that. So. It's just a whole lot with OAA. Um, yeah. yeah. Where yeah. can people find so now our more information? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, WW, no, we just got in partnership with the program out of Auburn University and bringing a uh, community education resource center here into Birmingham for those persons that are taking the higher education classes inside to continue to navigate their course with them as they're, yeah, those things, right? So to find yeah. out more information on OAA, you will go to our website, which is www.offenderalumni.org. You can find us on Facebook at Offender Alumni Association, uh, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, Offender Alumni Association. I am Dina, OAA, on Facebook. Uh, and it's always, always a pleasure just to speak to the heartbeat to that very thing that was laid out and laid up and in store for me to be able to give what I have to contribute to someone else's life in hopes yeah. that they may be able to have what I've found, which is joy unspeakable. And when they say, Dina, thank you for this. Don't, don't thank me. Help somebody else. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Dina, I know that this we should be able to talk about this more, but we're having our grand finale show and I hope that you can be a part of it. I'm going to definitely send you the invite. And if you have the time, please join us for that grand finale show. Offender Alumni Association is one of my favorite organizations. It's a peer supported organization. It is those who have been impacted by the justice system that have lived experience who can share exactly what you just shared to help people to overcome a lot of the challenges and barriers that they face. Dina and Deborah are amazing. Um, I remember meeting Deborah at the US uh, probation office uh, that they had this uh, event and meeting her was amazing and hearing about OAA and they definitely are an organization that people should look into and support. So this week we had Dina Dickerson with us from Offender Alumni Association. She is amazing. The organization is amazing. I want to say thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, thank you for sharing your stories, Dina. And we look forward to the next disruptive dialogue coming up. It's our grand finale, so make sure you do not miss it. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you again next week.